Welcome back. I'm Brian. Thank you for listening to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. We are currently walking through the book of Matthew. Hopefully chatting through these first five chapters has been very helpful for your readings. If you're reading along with us, I would like to recommend you also talking through what you're reading with a friend. Before all this virus stuff happened, some of my most fruitful Bible study sessions were actually carpooling or doing lunch with a friend and just spitballing about what we were reading through. Nowadays, a text or a call can be a great way to go. If you're not reading along with us but would like to, you can give me a follow on Facebook at From Hevel to Eternity, and each week we'll post readings and some additional information. Last episode, we finished Matthew chapter 5, the first of three chapters collectively known as the Sermon on the Mount. They are probably some of Jesus' most famous teachings. Today, we're going to try to tackle chapter 6, so let's roll. In the first part of chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus addresses characteristics a Christian should display. He follows that by talking about how a Christian should influence the world around them by being salt and light. The rest of chapter 5 starts to talk to how obedience isn't just about our outward actions, but about our heart as well. Righteousness isn't just a behavior thing. It is something that flows from where your heart is at. Here in chapter 6, we start to get into Jesus' teaching on Christian authenticity and genuineness. Jesus is contrasting what genuine versus quote-unquote for show religion looks like. He is drawing a line between the hearts of true kingdom members and superficial members, between people who just show up at church on Sunday and don't have a heart for Jesus and actual authentic followers of Christ. Stott says, in vivid and deliberately humorous imagery, Jesus paints a picture of the hypocrite's way of being religious. In verses 1 through 4, what is Jesus' first warning? Right off the bat, he warns us against performing our good deeds and our charitable giving for others to see. It's a warning against being showy with our religion. Jesus is continuing the trend of calling us to fight our natural bend and to recognize where our heart is coming from. We are to fight the urge to make it all about us. What human traits cause us to naturally bend towards flaunting our good deeds? I would argue pride is definitely one, right? You might also say self-centeredness or selfishness or greed or jealousy, and you'd probably be right also. But don't just hit on the big showy ones. Sometimes the root cause of us flaunting ourselves is harder to see. For instance, Insecurity is a huge reason people try to draw positive attention to themselves, right? If you're constantly posting about something looking for people to like it or to affirm your actions, what someone else might think is you just being prideful is actually a bigger insecurity issue, right? Our insecurities and our anxieties can lead us to seek attention just as much as our arrogance can. Jesus doesn't differentiate here. He just warns us against putting on a show of our religion in a way that can be off-putting and hypocritical to others. Now, this doesn't mean nobody can ever see you do something good and nice. Jesus is not saying that in order to give to the food pantry, you have to break in at 2 a.m. when nobody is looking and leave a shopping cart full of canned goods that you can never speak about again. No. Just as the previous chapter, this is all about the heart behind your actions. The heart is what connects Jesus' call for us to let our light shine before others with his call not to flaunt our charitable actions. Are you doing good deeds to show others Christ, or are you doing good deeds so that others will notice you? Stott again says, 
the question is not so much what the hand is doing, but what the heart is thinking while the hand is doing it. John 5.44 says, How can you believe who receive glory from one another, and you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? For they loved men's praise more than God's praise, is John 12.43. Charles Spurgeon once said, To stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. Okay, so this next part isn't really a Bible study thing, but it's about the headers in the Bible. Those headers in each section of the Bible, they weren't in the original translations. They are placed there to help guide, help guide readers, and they vary with each translation. Normally, I find them super helpful, and I highly recommend using them, but in this one section, I kind of take issue with what has been put up there. A lot of the translations have headers something along the lines of giving to the poor and needy. This section isn't really about what you're doing or who you're giving to as much as it is about the heart behind your actions. I have in my notes for this section, do not flaunt your good deeds. In fact, this is in instructions about how to give it all. The text just assumes that you're already doing that as a Christian. This is really all about instructing us to point others toward God, not ourselves. In the next section, Jesus is addressing prayer. Verses 5 through 15 continue to talk about the heart behind our prayer life, as well as Jesus giving us an example prayer. The Lord's Prayer, which is familiar to Christians and non-Christians alike. There are two groups that Jesus contrasts with how members of the kingdom should pray. He starts with the religious leaders, who hypocritically pray to God in the most public fashion possible for selfish gain. The second group is the Gentiles, who carry on in their prayers hoping people will think them more religious because they use special lingo or a lot of words. Both groups kind of circle back to the same place. They are actually trying to get the attention of men and not God, which makes a mockery of what prayer actually is. Jesus also talks about going into your room to pray. He is not saying that public prayer is inappropriate. He's saying don't pray out loud in a public place just because you want people to see that you're praying out loud in a public place. No, he's not saying that if you lock yourself in your room, then you're gold no matter what you say either. No, Bonhoeffer says, I can lay on a very nice show for myself even in the privacy of my own room. When referring to the Gentiles, Jesus uses the words vain repetitions in one translation. The Greek word here, which I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce, is batalogio. It also gets translated into babble or stammering on by other translations. Strong's refers to it as chattering, being long-winded, repeating, and uttering empty words, while Helps says it is referring to blubbering, nonsensical repetitions. The word is actually not used anywhere else in the Bible. Don't use prayer as a means to do anything other than communicate, converse, and have a relationship with God. Jesus warns us against having ulterior motives to our prayers. This can be showing off, but I also think he's warning us against trying to hammer home a point to anybody listening to our prayers. Again, our prayers aren't meant to be for the people around us. They're meant to be for God. Blumberg notes that prayer ought not to be used to summarize a sermon or communicate information to an audience, but should reflect genuine conversation with God.
After these warnings, Jesus then offers us an example prayer. The Lord's Prayer is short and famous. It is probably recognizable by most Westerners just because of its publicity. Instead of unboxing every word and phrase, I'm going to start with a big picture look at the Lord's Prayer. It starts, Pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be kept holy. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. Bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The benediction, that last part about for yours is the kingdom and power, is beautiful. But a lot of translations actually don't include it, because we don't find it in a lot of the earliest manuscripts that we have. It goes back to how we got our translations, and if you're curious, I have a full podcast on that that you can search for. But the short story is that we think this was added to the text as this prayer became used more and more in public ceremonies. The additional stuff is relatively irrelevant from a theological standpoint. It's just an interesting note. So if you don't have that part, it's not that you're missing part of the Bible. Again, the earliest manuscripts don't seem to have that. But anyways, what jumps out to you in this prayer? Well, it's really short, and it covers a lot of territory. But notice, how often does I, me, my, mine come up in the Lord's Prayer? It doesn't show up at all. It's not a me-centered prayer. In fact, it's the opposite of the hypocritical prayers Jesus warns us against. This prayer is pointing first and foremost upward toward God. The focus of this conversation with God is God, about what he has done, will do, and what only he can do. So this prayer flips the way we sometimes pray on its head. We usually start with us. Thank you, God, for. God, please help us with. And then we move on to recognizing him and his glory. Jesus starts out with a proclamation that God's name be kept holy, and then with the recognition that his will be done. Again, this is about heart change and mindset adjustment. John Piper, in an interview on DesiringGod.org, says, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in meeting desires you already had before you were born again. He came into the world to change your desires so that he's the main one. But Jesus also recognizes that true prayer involves praying for our own personal needs and the needs of those around us. Give us today our daily bread is a petition for God to provide us with what we need to get through the day. Just as God provided just enough manna to get through each day in the wilderness for the Israelites, we can petition God for the necessities in our life. The danger here is what we might consider necessities. Jesus is not asking for a luxurious, safe, comfortable life. But ignoring our actual prayer requests is just as bad as focusing 100% on them. We should pray for forgiveness also. Forgiveness from God for our sins, and this next part I think we miss a lot. We need to pray for God to transform our hearts, to desire to forgive others. This is hard. This part doesn't come up very often. It's not something that really comes up. I think bitterness might actually be one of the most taboo conversational topics we have in the world nowadays. Then in verse 13, our translations jump around a bit. The more applicable translation might be more what Bloomberg presents. Don't let us succumb to temptation, or don't abandon us to temptation. The Bible is clear that as Christians living in a fallen world, we will experience temptation. 
Even Jesus experienced temptation. All right, that's Jesus' prayer. As we read through Jesus' teaching on prayer, and I look at Jesus' prayer routines, you notice that it is a relational habit for him. It's part of his normal, everyday life, no matter the situation. It got me asking myself this question. For me, is prayer a reactionary thing, something that I do when I need to because of something that happened? Or is prayer a relational habit, something that I do because it's ingrained in me to want to do no matter the circumstances? Take news from WebMD, for instance. Normal people don't randomly go to WebMD as part of their daily life just to see what's going on in the medical world. They go and they have something they want to find out about. Something happened and going to the Google doctor is a reaction to that. That's normal, I'm not knocking that, but how much of our prayer routine has become that? How much of my relationship with God revolves around my reaction to what might be happening in the world around me? I'm trying to say this carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood. You should absolutely pray to God about the world around you. You should absolutely pray to God about the situations that pop up in your own life. That's not my point. My point is that our prayer life shouldn't primarily be built on that that this thought pattern has completely burdened me all week. When I ask my son how we should pray for his favorite or his least favorite parts of the day, or ask him his highs and lows of the day, or when I ask my small group for their praises and their requests, does that create an environment where we tend to ignore our everyday relationship with God, our recognition of his glory every day that we're breathing? Something I hear from so many people is, Should I be praying for that, or is that silly to pray for? The answer is that if it is a burden on your heart, you should be praying for it, and it is not silly to pray about it. The answer might not be what you want, but it's not silly to pray about. The real question becomes, is this all that you're praying about? The more I prayed through this and meditated on this, the more I really came to see that we, as a culture, have a hard time setting up a prayer habit where we pray during the in-between time. Because we hear so much focus on the peaks and the valleys that when we're just kind of humming through life at, a, at like a medium level, we aren't pushed toward prayer. When do you think it is the most frequent time that my son gets told to pray? It's when he's scared, when something bad happens, or when he gets something he really wants, right? Like hashtag blessed. It's, it's just tragedy and prosperity. It's peaks and valleys. These are the times that we pray the most. And I desire that our prayer life should reflect more of an example set forth by Jesus. I pray that God's name be holy in our prayer lives. Verses 16 through 18 deal with fasting. And so the first question becomes, what is fasting? I would define fasting in short as refraining from some worldly thing to remember that God is more important than that thing. When we fast, we take an exercise in humbling ourselves before God. It is probably most commonly practiced by refraining from food, but it's not limited to that. It can take all kinds of forms. Anything in your life that you fear might be drawing your focus from God can be the focus of a fast. The key is that fasting is only fasting when you refrain from something and focus on God as more important than that something. If you refrain from video games and instead binge watch Netflix, that's not really a fast. 
Fasting can involve self-reflection or prayer or reading scripture, but it has to involve filling that something with God, not with otherworldly things. Jesus endorses fasting, but again he points out ways where people engage in a religious action in a way that seeks to draw attention to themselves, not to God. They make something that is meant to refocus our attention toward God and instead, instead try to draw others' focus toward them. He is pointing out the hypocritical and superficial tendencies of our own vanity. Isaiah 58 gives a pretty good example of both a selfish fast aimed at worldly things and what a biblical fast might look like. This is Isaiah 58 verses 3 through 7. It's the ESV translation if you want to read along. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself. It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and to bring homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. These verses are saying that a prideful faster seeks his own pleasure, while a biblical faster seeks humility and God. In verse 19, Jesus pivots toward the difference between treasures in heaven and treasures on earth. He commands us to lay up treasures in heaven where it will never go bad. Here, I like what Stott says defining earthly treasures as the selfish accumulation of goods. It's not about giving up everything you own in this world. I mean, Jesus could require us to sell everything for him, but he doesn't make that the rule. The command here is more about accumulating and coveting out of having a selfish heart instead of seeking to utilize whatever resources you have been blessed with to further the kingdom. What we desire and where we spend our resources is a good indication of what we seek and where our ambition is. I have three quotes that I keep on my desk at the office that aren't Bible verses. There are quotes I read to myself just about every day, and they're about seeking to lay up treasures in heaven and not after worldly ambition. The first is by Chris Green from Summit Church. If you want to see what's number one in somebody's life, what's on the throne in their life, Look at what most easily makes them angry. The second one is from Ben Stewart. What you think about, you care about. And what you care about, you chase. The third is from Brian Laughlin. Are you chasing being liked, or are you resting in being loved? How does the healthy eye imagery in verses 22 and 23 relate to laying up treasures in heaven? Well, in scripture, the eye correlates often with the heart. Two verses in Psalm 119 reflect this. Verse 10 says, With my whole heart I have sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. And verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. Verse 24 ends, You can't serve both God and mammon, or God and money, depending on your translation. 
it's sometimes thought of as meaning you can't have money and serve God. But remember, Jesus is after our hearts as much as our actions. The passage is as much about other resources such as time as it is about liquid wealth. And Jesus knows what our ambitions are. So in my desire to accumulate wealth and hoard my resources for my own purposes, or is my desire to use whatever resources I have to further the kingdom of God? In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, Solomon would call the former Hevel, chasing after the wind. He actually says that it's vanity, and when you die, it'll get given away to somebody else who will probably just squander it anyway. The latter is what Jesus is seeking, a heart focused on him. Blumberg says, we try so hard to create heaven on earth and to throw in Christianity when it's convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. John Stott says, to try to share him, God, with other loyalties is to have, is to have opted for idolatry. Building on the difference between having worldly or eternal desires, Jesus closes out chapter 6 talking about anxiety. What emotions do we think that anxiety stems from? There's a big long list of possible answers here, but I'll focus on two. Fear and insecurity. I think most of our anxiety is based on the fear of what could happen and an insecurity about what we've been promised will happen. Jesus calls us to focus on the promises of God and his love for his people, which exceeds that of everything else on this earth. Then he calls us to refocus our requests and seek after God's kingdom and God's righteousness and trust in God's promises. Jesus is not saying that our sustainment isn't important. He just asked us to pray about that in the Lord's Prayer when he asked us to pray about having our daily bread. But he's saying, don't get bogged down in fear by wondering where your sustainment will come from. Our sustainment comes from God, and we should seek to find rest in that. Now, Jesus trying to free us from debilitating anxiety does not equal freeing us from all our worldly struggles. The start of the Sermon on the Mount makes it clear that as members of the kingdom, we will endure mourning and suffering and persecution. But... If anxiety stems from fear and insecurity, what am I seeking to overcome those fears? Am I looking to worldly things to ease my insecurities, or am I resting in heavenly things? There is a quote that I love from J. Alec Motyer. He says, To choose the world is to be overwhelmed by the world. The times that I have the most anxieties, I find that my anxieties are always associated with my reliance on worldly things. And that each time my desires and my ambitions get pointed the wrong way toward worldly things, that's where I find myself getting anxious and stressed. Look, Jesus is not minimizing our real-life daily troubles. He even ends the chapter by saying that each day's own trouble is sufficient for itself. He is just asking us to pray for today and to lay our, anxi our anxieties for tomorrow at his feet, the founder and perfecter of our faith in whom we can find rest. Next episode, we'll pick up with chapter 7. It's the last chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, so maybe we'll end next episode with a pizza party or something. Please follow us on From Hevel to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on all the latest stuff. Unless otherwise noted, all the Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.